Have you ever had a dream that you wake up from and then you eventually fall back asleep only for that dream to actually resume? Well, that, that happened to me last night, and here is uh, what my dream was about. I was apparently out of the country on vacation, I assume, uh, in Jamaica. Uh, and it was Saturday, and at some point during the day on Saturday while in Jamaica, I somehow suddenly realized that I never lined anyone up to preach in my place. And so I became filled with stress and anxiety in my dream. Uh, and when I woke up, as I mentioned that first time, it was one of those where, you know, you have that wave of relief come over you because I was thankful, wait, I, I'm here in my bedroom, I'm in the country, I'm preaching tomorrow, it's all good. But then I fell back asleep, the dream resumed, uh, and it went downhill from there. Katie and I got into an argument because I was insistent that I had to fly home uh, in order to preach and that I would fly back to Jamaica. Um, I share this with you. I don't know why I'm sharing it with you. Uh, I guess other, uh, no other reason to communicate. I'm here, uh, and I'm <laughs> going to preach a sermon. I'm not in Jamaica. I didn't fly here from Jamaica to be with you, um, and Katie and I didn't get into an argument about that. So here we are. So we are continuing our sermon series uh, that we have called Sent. We have two weeks left, this morning and next week. Uh, I want you, if you have a Bible with you, if you don't, you're welcome to use one of the Pew Bibles. I want you to turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. This series, in this series, uh, what we've been considering is what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to live as God sent people in the world? So I want to read um, our passage for this morning with that theme in mind. The Apostle Peter wrote, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession." that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let me uh, take uh, this opportunity to ask the Holy Spirit to uh, teach us from God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, that is our prayer, that you would teach us. You are the best teacher. And so we pray that you would open... God's word to us. We pray that you would guide us through it, that we might receive. We pray that we would receive what it is that you want for us to receive, and that you would bring your word to bear on our hearts in the way that we need that to happen this morning. We pray that you would do that wherever we are in this moment. Some of us believe, uh, others of us aren't sure what we believe, and still others are maybe confident this morning that they don't believe. But here we are all together, and so Holy Spirit, Again, we pray, we plead with you, teach us so that we might see Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
For us to make sense, really, of the passage that we're looking at this morning, we need to revisit uh, an idea, concept, theme that we have talked about um, at least for the last two weeks. And it has to do with, foundationally, with how the Bible works in general. We need to get the proper order of things straight. Some of us might be of the mindset that the Bible is primarily a moral handbook. So if you were asked, all right, what is the Bible? Your answer, response might be something along those lines, that it's a moral handbook. It's a textbook uh, teaching us how to live life. And there's certainly truth to that, but at its most basic core, at the foundational level, that is not just simply what the Bible is. It's much more than that. And in fact, the point that I'm making is that if that exclusively is our understanding of what the Bible is, we're going to read the Bible uh, inaccurately. Sometimes we uh, think of the Bible as uh, a religious textbook. So not just simply a moral handbook, but a religious textbook. That's another way that we might approach Scripture. But according to this view, the main purpose of the Bible is to impart morality. Now, the Bible does impart morality. Don't get me wrong. Actually, we clearly hear that in our passage. The passage is calling us to be mindful of our conduct, right? But what we're talking about is at the most basic core foundational level. And what I want us to see in this passage is that this just isn't true to what we find in Scripture, this idea that the Bible is simply a moral handbook. Um, If you recall me reading the passage just a few moments ago, where does Peter start? Where does he start? He starts with who we are. He starts with our identity. Before he begins to talk about our conduct, before he gets into those so that statements, he first reminds us of our identity, who we are. And what does he have to say about that? Well, we're going to explore that. We're going to look at this passage through two lenses, um, identity and purpose. Um, but we're, gonna, are, are, we're getting the order straight. We want to begin with identity first. If we move into purpose, we might approach the Bible uh, in, a, in a way that's not helpful. We may read it as simply a moral handbook. So before we get to purpose, we want to uh, start with identity. So let's begin with identity. Who does Peter claim that we are in this passage? Well, let's read his list. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Then if you look down a little later in the passage at verse 11, he refers to God's people as beloved. So this is where the Bible starts. This is the beginning point, identity, who we are. And let's focus in right now on these, uh, th- this list here in verse 9. Again, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. When Peter uh, mentions these in the passage, he's actually drawing from the Old Testament of the Bible. If we were to go back to, and you're welcome to do so, look at the book of Exodus, the the 19th chapter of Exodus. A little bit of context here. Um, So the first uh, several chapters of Exodus, it tells the story ultimately of God delivering his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. 
And it gets to, uh, it's moving toward the point in chapter 20 when the Ten Commandments are going to be given. And you've probably heard me talk about this before. Um, and Wayne actually may have mentioned this in a sermon last week, if I remember from reading his manuscript. Um, there's actually a prologue to the Ten Commandments. So before the first commandment is given, what does it say? It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. What is God doing there? Well, he's actually teaching us in the way that we are talking about right now. He wants us to keep, to have the right order in place. Before he, be, before he gives us commands to live by, he reminds his people of who they are. Even more specifically, he reminds them of what he's done for them. But in that prior chapter, in chapter 19, uh, it really begins there. Because in verses 4 through 6, it says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, key words, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Did you, you catch those? Similar language to the language that Peter is using in our passage. Treasured possession, kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And here he uses the language of chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. Let's explore these, each of these, uh, a little bit. Let's begin with a royal, a chosen race. This is uh, a remarkable beginning point here in our passage. And um, I actually almost just skipped over it uh, to go right into a, a royal possession, even though I knew in my mind that this is a key point in the sermon. But it actually illustrates the point that it's so easy for us to skip over this idea that we are chosen by God. This is, um, this is so significant in the Christian life. Uh, I, last Sunday, um, we were in South Carolina. By the way, we were there for four or five days, and it was not below 95 degrees uh, any day that we were there. And I officiated a wedding last Sunday um, outside, and uh, at the start of the wedding at 6 p.m., it was about 95 degrees. Um, so that gives you a little bit of idea of what the people in the South, the weather they've been dealing with lately. But I had the opportunity to officiate a wedding. It's always fun and an honor to do that. But as I stand there um, with the bride and groom, you know, it's always this moment when I realize that they are there's a great chance that they are never going to feel better about themselves than on that day in the sense that they, they, they feel they look great, they've spent time, energy, and money into how they look on that day, right? Um, they're feeling confident about how they look, most likely. They, uh, their love for each other, even though it's probably, it, well, not probably, it's romanticized in many ways because the, the true test is about to come, but they're feeling that strong love for each other. And there's also this sense in which they both are chosen, right? The other has chosen the other. And that in that moment, that shapes their identity. It shapes their identity as far as they relate to each other. And this is the beginning point here in our passage. We're reminded that we are chosen by God. Now, unfortunately, over the course of church history, this, um, uh, this idea of God choosing, does God choose us? Do we choose him? 
It has um, resulted in many debates and controversies throughout church history, and it's all very unfortunate because this is meant for practical application. And the point is this. If you are in Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are chosen by God. He chose you. He set his affection on you. He desires you. And so before we begin thinking about how are we supposed to live, what should our moral conduct be at Christians, as Christians, the starting point is this, that you are deeply loved by God. He set his affections on you. Yes, you. That's how deep his love is for you, that he chose you. And from there, Peter refers to God's people as a royal priesthood. The language that was used in the Exodus passage was a kingdom of priests. What, were the, well, what was the role of priests in the Old Testament? Well, it was a representative role. Priests stood in the middle between God and the people. And their calling was to bring the knowledge of God to the world, to make him known, and to invite people to come into fellowship with God. Priests were commissioned to be God's people on the earth. A way of uh, putting this in just everyday, everyday language, priests help people find their way to God. And so do you see what Peter's saying? He's saying that that is part of our identity. That it's, we're gonna, there's a role, right, clearly, that uh, is associated with that. But before it's a role, it's an identity. It's, and that's the key thing with each of these phrases or words. This is who we are. We live in light of this because of who we are. It's not, all right, try to live out something that you're not. It's here's who you are, and here are the roles that flow from that. A holy nation. What is meant by a holy nation? Well, what's going on here um, is that Peter is making the connection between Israel and the church. He's saying that in the scope of redemptive history, what has happened as we are now into the New Testament, um, following the ministry of, of Jesus and his coming, is that the, church, that the true Israel is now the church. Now, it does not discount Israel as a, a real nation and as a people, but now the connection is made to uh, faith in Christ in particular, spirituality, being connected to Jesus spiritually. And now, the true Israel is the church. And so Peter um, borrows some of this language that was used of God's people in the Old Testament as a nation to now apply it to the church. So what might this mean of us to think of ourselves, the church, as a holy nation? Well, what's interesting is that um, this has at least always been true of me growing up. I grew up, for the most part, in the church. Whenever I, I heard the word holy, holy literally means set apart. And so I, I always associated that with kind of like this um, high and out there type of spirituality, that God is holy, which is absolutely true. He's set apart. He's other. Uh, again, all true. But when Peter refers to us as a holy nation, and when that language is used in Exodus chapter 19, what is in view is a down-to-earth reflection of God's holiness. How, how does the world come to know and experience God as holy? It's actually through the way that we follow Jesus. It's through the way that the church lives in the everyday stuff of life. Holiness is expressed in the everyday stuff of life. 
It's not simply private piety or religious rituals. It has to do with distinction, that our lives are distinct in some way. They're different in that as followers of Jesus, our ambition should be that our lives reflect who God is to the world around us. Holiness is moral beauty. We don't, I don't know about you, but we don't tend to think of morality in that category as something that is beautiful. But morality, according to the Bible, is God's design for living. When we walk in God's ways, when we follow his commandments, it's like finding your stride in life. It's becoming who you were meant to be. That's holiness. Holiness is practical. It's day in and day out living and seeking to follow Jesus. A people for his own possession. This uh, probably uh, of all of these descriptions that Peter uses in the passage this week, I have really been thinking about this one the most. Um, The context for this phrase is, uh, it's a royal context. It speaks of a personal treasure of a monarch and a monarch's family. What is intended here is that as the church, as God's people, we are intended to be a display people. We are intended to showcase to the world, as I said earlier, who God is and what he's like. It's, the church is God's trophy. I remember growing up, uh, I played Little League, and then I played soccer, and um, over the years, as I accumulated some trophies, I would do what with them? Throw them away? No. I would put them on my, my shelves in my bedroom to display them because I was proud of them. Well, there's something similar going on here. God desires for his, as his people, we are his trophy, and he desires for us to be displayed to the world. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, Peter is quoting from the Old Testament, specifically from the prophet Hosea. And again, there's um, evidence here that Peter is seeing the church as the true Israel now, right? Making this connection um, that you were not a people, but now you are a people You see this throughout this passage, that Peter is driving home the fact that as Jesus' followers, we belong to God. We are his people. And that's, like I said, the starting point. It's the starting point for this passage. It's the starting point for the biblical story. It's the starting point for living the Christian life. What's my story comes before what am I supposed to do? And what's my story? It's similar to asking, who am I? What's my identity? And this is what Peter claims, that we belong to God. This is not just merely theological talk. It's not merely theological truths. These are claims and truths that transform our lives when we really believe them and they get inside of us. We go throughout life um, wounding others, being wounded uh, by others. And all of these things influence who we are. They all become, for better or worse, significant parts of our story. And we begin to view ourselves, our identity, 
um, through the lens of all of these things that we have done and all of these things that have been done against us. And some of those hurts and those wounds run incredibly deep. And they mess with us, don't they? They mess with our, uh, sometimes our ability to relate well and love others. They mess with our ability to relate well and love God, to receive God's love and to receive the love of others because maybe a, a significant part of our story is that we don't feel valued, that we don't feel value, that we feel maybe worthless, these kinds of things. And so this starting point in the biblical story is transformative for us because the message that you need to hear this morning is that through Jesus, you are deeply loved, you are chosen, that you belong even when you don't feel like you do, even when you feel like you don't deserve it. That's the whole point. That's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus, that you, through faith in Jesus, belong to God even though you don't deserve it. This changes everything, changes the way that we view God and we relate to him, it changes the way that we, review, we uh, view ourselves and relate internally to ourselves, and it changes the way that we view others and relate to them. As I've said already numerous times, this is the starting point. And so before we talk, we're about to talk about purpose, but before we do so, I want to just point out another reason why this is so important. You don't have to perform to earn God's love. Because of what Jesus has done for you, what does Peter call you? Beloved, right? Verse 11, that's, where, that's how he starts that sentence. Beloved, you are beloved by God. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. You don't have to earn it. And so life for you does not have to be a stage onto which you are constantly trying to climb up on and perform to get the love of others and the love of God. You have the love that matters most. You are chosen by God. You belong to him. Verses 11 and 12, Peter says, as sojourners and exiles. As sojourners and exiles. We can add that before we move into purpose, we can add that to our identity. Part of belonging to God, being his people, is that we are sojourners and exiles. Now, that doesn't make me feel comfortable all the time. I'm sure it doesn't make you feel comfortable because there's a sense in which, not a sense in which, what is being said is that um, we are, are marg meant to be marginalized in many ways in terms of how we relate to the world around us. Our, this flows from where we just, um, what we were just exploring. We are chosen by God. We have his love, so we don't need the love of others or the love of the world. And so as the church, we don't need to collectively try to step up onto the stage of life to perform. We don't have to try to uh, gain and accumulate power this has been a, a, a real issue for Christians in the West, that we think that the goal of Christianity is to gain power and have influence. That is not promised to us. Peter says that our identity as followers of Jesus, part of that identity is we are sojourners and exiles. We're not always going to be liked. We're not always going to be accepted. Now, it's a whole other issue if we're not liked and accepted because our conduct is not reflective of God, and that's a whole other issue that 
um, happens a, a lot, but as I say sometimes, that's a sermon for another time. But this is who we are, sojourners and exiles. And even though it's uncomfortable, I think the way to become more comfortable with the uncomfortability is by accepting this over time and being okay with it. And how do you do that? We're beloved by God. Jesus loves us. We are his treasured possession. We are his. And so regardless of how popular we are, regardless of the level of influence or power we have, we belong to God. Now let's talk about purpose. Because uh, what is really profound in this passage is that everything about identity relates to purpose and mission. It's not, we might think, and this is something that we're guilty of a lot, at least I am, I, 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 I sometimes think of all of this, as I mentioned earlier, like exclusively as personal piety, right? That this all has to do with my personal relationship with God and how I live before him. But what is clear in this passage is that there's no such thing simply as personal piety. All piety is social. Yes, it's personal in that we need to own our piety, right? We need to own our conduct, our, our life um, that we live. But it's always social in that other people are always involved. There's no such thing as exclusively living by yourself and God. There are always other people involved. And so uh, at the end of verse 9, Peter says this. It's that so that statement, right? What is the purpose of who we are as God's people? What is our purpose as God's people in the world? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why do we exist as the church? We exist to be God's sent people in the world. The reason that he chooses us is so that we might help bring others to a knowledge and relationship with God, that they might actually see God's beauty, his majesty in and through our lives. I know that that sounds, the response to that is, wow, like that seems way far too big for my life. And it is, but remember who you are. See, when we start thinking that way, we're, all, we're getting the order wrong. We're thinking it's up to us, but who are you in Jesus? Who are you in him? If you are truly beloved by him, he has the power to change you. He has the power to do these things through you that he promises and that are reflective of who you actually are in the first place as his daughter or son. Verse 12. After, or start, let's just start with verse 11 for context, context. After Peter calls us beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, the flesh which wage, wage war against your soul. So clearly personal piety going on here, right? There's obviously an internal and personal dimension to our faith. But notice where Peter goes from there. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That's basically referring to all those outside of the church, those that we live our lives among. So, so that, there's another so that statement, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, so we should expect in many ways to be marginalized, to not be liked, to not be in the in crowd and all of those things. 
But when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I think of Jesus. You know, we, as Christians, our ambition is to follow Jesus, to grow in Christ's likeness, to become like him. Jesus faced accusations. Jesus was marginalized. Jesus ultimately suffered. Jesus ultimately was put to death. But how did he live? How did he respond to all of that? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He sought to offer forgiveness. He sought to love in response. And so our lives, in the same way, we are God's treasured possession. We're his display people, and our lives are meant to display. It's not going to happen perfectly, but our lives are meant to display something that is true of God's very character. Identity and purpose. We need to keep the order straight. I wonder what practically, I asked this question as I introduced the confession of sin this morning, I wonder what how our lives would change. And by this, I don't mean that this isn't happening at all. It's just the way that I'm asking the question. But as we really begin to more fully and over time in our lives, believe these things that Peter is saying, beginning with our identity, what are evidences of change in our life? What does that look like? Well, we could come up with several points of application. One, I think, is that We are unafraid to explore our personal stories. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I I think that for many of us, myself included, as I referred to earlier, we go through life, we wound others, we're wounded by others, and as a result, we carry around these um, oftentimes very uh, burdensome hurts. And our hurts become worse because we are not willing to actually deal with them. Why? Because we're afraid. We're afraid to explore what's there. We're afraid uh, to open ourselves up to being hurt more. But the Christian faith, it it really helps with this. Because I I think fear, when when we're unwilling to explore our personal stories, the fear has to do with, what if I begin... um, exploring this, and I begin to feel like I'm not really loved, that I'm not truly accepted. The Christian fit, that's our starting point, right? We actually are, whoa, sorry about that. I'm I'm getting uh, demonstrative up here. Holy Spirit, right? What was I talking about? Um, Exploring our personal stories, help me out here. What was the last line I said? All right, one person. Fear we won't be accepted. But with the Christian faith, our starting point is that, what? We are a chosen people. We are beloved by God. We are his. And so we can have the courage to explore our stories and to deal with our hurts and wounds, knowing that every step of the way, Jesus is present with us, demonstrating his love to and for us. Another way that this might apply is that We begin to love the church more. And by the church, I mean the people more. Throughout this series, I've just been reminded of the communal language that is used throughout Scripture, not just the New Testament, but throughout. And it's really encouraging to me because 
I so often view the living out of the Christian life through my own individual personal lens. Like I always think, okay, Christian, I, I think I, even though I am aware of this, like in preaching and things like that, I still make it so much about my own personal piety. But what is in this passage is a reminder of how much God loves his people, how much God loves the church, and how he longs for us to find ourselves uh, among, to be counted among God's people, and to see our identity not just individually as ones who are chosen by God. We, We talked about that application a little bit, exploring our stories, but we don't explore our stories alone. We don't explore our stories apart from relationships and community with others. God has gifted us with others. He's gifted us with the church so that others might walk alongside of us. And our calling to be the sent people of God, uh, I'll say it this directly, it cannot be done only individually. You by yourself cannot be God's display people to the world. And this is why all the language is communal. Together, we can. Together, as we have to learn patience, as we have to learn forgiveness, as we have to learn to walk alongside one another, the world might see that and come to uh, the conclusion that there's something substantial, there's something provocative, there's something real in those people, and it might display the truth and glory of God's character to them. We, we could um, go on and on, really, with this. One other, this idea of being a treasured possession. This is the one I've been thinking. I mentioned this. I've been thinking about this week. Like, what would change in my life if I increasingly believed that I was God's treasured possession, that we, as the church, really are God's treasured possession? How would that change the way that I view my own personal possessions? What's the passage claiming? That those personal possessions actually aren't mine. They're ultimately God's. He has given them to me as a gift to steward for what purpose? For ultimately reflecting who he is to the world. We belong to God as his people, both individually and collectively. And so the gifts that, and resources that God gives, us to a church, uh, gives to us as a church God desires for us to be good stewards of those because they're ultimately his, and he wants us to use them to display him to the world. Now, the hard part about all this, this all probably sounds um, grand and glorious and beautiful in many ways, um, but it's hard to live this out, isn't it? It's hard. Um, We're guilty of being hypocrites oftentimes in our lives, aren't we? I know I am. Uh, I, I view my possessions as exclusively mine. You know, I don't share them as much as I should. I don't steward them for God's glory as I should. But let me, I, I hope this would encourage you that repentance and faith is actually part of what it means and looks like to reflect God to the world. When you fail to live as a follower of Jesus, When you fail to apply some of the things that we've talked about in this passage, what do you do with that? Because that's actually where the world, where people look in and find out really what makes a follower of Jesus tick. What do you do with that? Do you practice humility? Are you able to repent, sometimes publicly when it's necessary? 
to own and name your sin, and to do so with courage and empowerment, knowing that you are able to do that. Why? Because of who you are. You are loved deeply and securely by Jesus. And so you actually don't have to hide from your sin. You don't actually have to make matters worse by trying to rationalize it and make excuses. You are freely able to confess your sin to others, knowing that God loves you and Jesus came for you. These practical, everyday stuff of life type of things is actually what it means to be the sent people of God. To live as the sent people of God, it's not just simply when we're gathered here uh, for worship on Sunday mornings or in the context of community groups. It's how we are relating to each other and those around us in the day-in and day-out activities of life. And yes, we are going to fail. We're going to be hypocrites. But again, what do we do with that? Are we willing to repent and turn to Jesus and demonstrate what Christian faith and Christian life actually is all about. Next week, um, we're going to uh, bring this series to a conclusion. We're going to look at a passage from the very final chapter of the Bible, uh, Book of Revelation. It's always a scary book uh, for a preacher to uh, open up and preach from because there's so much going on there that's unknown, Um, but I'm going to be brave. We're going to look at a passage from Revelation 5 next week specifically about um, what it looks like for God's church to reflect uh, the diversity that he intends uh, in creation. So let me go ahead and pray for us now. Holy Spirit, we're grateful for this time in your word. Uh, I pray that you would take what I've shared this morning and apply it and make it fruitful and, and meaningful for not only for um, those who have listened, but for myself as well. I pray that you would give us daily reminders of your deep love for us, that we are chosen by you as your people, that we are your treasured possession, that we are a holy nation, that we are uh, a a priesthood of believers. And I, I pray that this, as we embrace our identity more and more, that it would shape the way we live our lives. I pray uh, that we would reflect you increasingly to the world around us, not only as individuals, but I pray for us as City Church, as a corporate, communal, collective people. I pray that our city, that our Metro Wilmington region, would come to know more of who you are, Father, and what you're like through our witness. We're glad that it doesn't depend on us. We're thankful that you have given us the Holy Spirit We pray that you would empower us even this next week to live as your sent people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.